You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. There's so much guilt in our in the financial personal finance community about like doing that. Like, oh, you're buying yourself lattes, you're paying away a million dollars, or you're not working hard enough, all this stuff. And so to eliminate guilt, I think the two extra works really well because if you want to splurge, let's say you want to spend $400 on a pair of dress shoes, like a really nice pair you want to keep for a long time. Well, take another $400 and invest it in some sort of income producing asset, whatever, whether that be. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nick Majuli. Nick is the chief operating officer at a wealth management firm where he oversees operations across the firm and provides insight on business intelligence. He's also the author of OfDollarsAndData.com, a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and the Los Angeles Times. During the episode, I chat with Nick about why many people should put more focus on growing their income rather than saving more money to build true wealth, how one should go about building additional streams of income on the side, how using the 2x spending rule can help you eliminate guilt in making larger purchases, Nick's thoughts on what to do with money intended to be used as an emergency fund or maybe for a home down payment, why dollar cost averaging is better than trying to time the market, why you should reconsider maxing out your 401k if you're currently doing so, and much, much more. You guys might be a little surprised to hear my voice on this episode of Millennial Investing. I know it's been a while since I hosted the show. Clay's been doing a great job here on this show, and I've been spending most of my time focused on the real estate show that comes out on Mondays but it definitely is good to be back for this episode with Nick Majuli. I hope you guys really enjoy it. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Nick Majuli. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Robert. Appreciate it. Individual investors are often led to believe certain things based on information provided by the financial industry that is based on belief and conjecture instead of being based in data and evidence. Before we dive into some of the data that you have, what are the misconceptions or belief-based ideas that individual investors are misled to believe? Yeah, there's a couple big ones I want to touch on. I think there's three I'll touch on. The first one, which I think is more of a cultural thing than necessarily like something you might see in like Wall Street Journal or something, and that's buying the dip. You've probably heard this so many times, buy the dip, buy the dip. And that's like a big investment call amongst like retail investors. That's something where I think the data is pretty clear that following a strategy where you hold up extra cash to buy the dip is not very effective. And an example I can give with that is I actually wrote... So before I wrote my book, Just Keep Buying, I actually wrote a blog post, which became the intro. And I wrote that in early 2017. And I remember when I wrote it, people were saying like, oh, you know, market's overvalued, price to earnings ratio is too high. Like, you, I'm going to wait till there's a dip. I'm going to wait till there's a big crash, right? 
And so let's say they did that. Let's say you followed that strategy, right? And the next big crash that happened from 2017, like big, big crash was March, 2020. So let's say you even could perfectly time the bottom and you bought on March 23rd, 2020. At that point, the S&P 500 was down 33%. So that's a pretty good bargain if you could perfectly time it. But even if you had done that, you still would have bought at prices 7% higher than if you had just bought back in 2017. So it's one of those things where buying the dip seems like a good strategy and sometimes it does work, but you have to have perfect timing. And even then, a lot of times when you buy that dip is higher than the dip occurs higher than where you could have purchased originally. So that's the first one, buy the dip. I think it's um, one of these beliefs. Let's say you got an inheritance or you sold a business and you have a lot of money and you want to get invested. I always say, you know, just take the plunge and do it. Of course, that's higher risk to do that. But generally, most of the time, that is the optimal strategy in terms of you're going to get a better return from that. And if you're worried about risk, you should probably move into a less risky portfolio and just get invested now instead of sitting in cash forever. With inflation, you know, inflation is very high. You're sitting in cash that those dollars are losing value. I think that's another one is this average, you know, I'm going to slowly wade into the market type thing. I generally think that's not the greatest strategy. So that's the second one. And when there's a lot of data we can get into there as well. And the third one is maxing out your 401k. I think that's something that investors, it's almost, I would say almost universal in the personal finance investing community where it's like, oh no, you have to max. Like, And I used to do this too. I used to say this to people, but after running the data, I'm not sure it makes sense for everyone. So I'm not saying there aren't cases where you still should max. There are people that definitely should. But I think we just say it as like dogma almost without even thinking, is this actually true? Does this make sense for my situation, et cetera? And we can get into some of the specifics. But those are the three big ones. Buy the dip, don't average in, maybe don't max your 401k. Think about it, put some considerable thought before you do that. So those are the three big ones I would say in investing. Later in the conversation, we're going to dive into all three of those a little bit deeper. But the first one buying the dip, that speaks to me a lot because a lot of new investors will come to me and say the same thing. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I understand where you're coming from. On a short-term basis, if you're looking at a monthly chart, that dip looks very aggressive. But I always tell people to zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture. Zoom out to a year or even five years. And you're like, okay, that dip doesn't even look that bad compared to the short-term chart. You see people on Twitter sometimes during a dip say, wow, the market is at levels not seen since like 30 days ago. That's the joke. And the other joke I love, Ramp Capital, I love him on Twitter, Ramp Capital LLC, says the 100-year moving average is looking pretty good, right? And that's like the joke, right? It's like you're investing for a very long time period, the dips are almost non-existent, right? So that's kind of the fun part. One of the rules that you have is to focus on income and not spending. You say cutting spending has its limits, but growing your income doesn't. Find small ways to grow your income today that can turn into big ways to grow it tomorrow. There are two different ways I want to talk about this question. And the first is about the beginning of your rule when you said cutting spending has its limits. When I talk about this, I'm often met with contention about how saving money is actually better because it's, it isn't taxed like additional income is. If you earn an extra dollar, you're taxed on that. So you don't actually get that full dollar basically increase. But if you save a dollar, you're saving a dollar because there's no tax on that. So what role does taxes play when thinking about this dynamic between saving more and making more? Yeah. So I will agree that yes, when you're saved one dollar, you lower your spending by one dollar. That's one after tax dollar versus if you increase your income by a dollar, let's say you get 75 cents of that. Let's say you have a 25% effective tax rate. Right. So obviously the math there is clear. The issue is you can only do so much of that cutting spending before you hit a limit. So you're going to need to grow your income. And as you said, okay, well, like, how do you think about taxes? Personally, I don't think about that at all. And I'll say why, because like 
Do you not want the 75 cents? It's like, it's an extra 75 cents. Do you not want it? Now we can talk about, you know, the economics of that. Like there's this idea in economics called the income effect. And where it's like, let's say your wage right now is $40 an hour. Like, would you work an extra hour? Okay. Yeah. Now, what if I put it, you know, you're, let's say you're willing to work, you know, 40 hours a week, but what if your wage was $40,000 an hour? At some point you're going to be like, you know what? It's not worth it for me to work an extra hour because I make so much money. I'm spending already what I want to spend. Like maybe you'll work. It's called a negative income effect. At a certain point, you're going to pull back. The same is true in taxes. If the tax rate got high enough, at some point, like the marginal tax rate, people would say, you know what? It's not worth it for me to work an extra hour. Let's say the government took away like 99% of your income after a million dollars. You would just, everyone would work to a million and stop. They would say, I'm never going to work past that because the government's going to take it all anyways. Even though like, yes, that $1 is great. They're going to, or that one cent is great. The government takes 99 cents. So there is some sort of income effect there that's definitely happening. But I think for most people, we're not even close to it. So I think that for most people, that argument isn't really going to hold water, I think. And of course, there's exceptions to that, but that's my take on the taxes and taxing your extra income. Plus, like we talked about the dip, you said that if you had waited, you're actually still buying at, even after a 33% decrease, you're still buying at a rate that's 7% higher than what you Mm -hmm. would have originally bought. I kind Mm -hmm. of look at it the same way with this. It's like, okay, yeah, you would maybe save a dollar. And so that's $1 you saved on an after-tax basis. But what if maybe you earn $2 in income on an Mm after-tax basis? So you can still be ahead even after paying the taxes. Of course. Yeah. Easily. Right. That's one of those very easy things. I completely agree with that. And the other piece is not everybody wants this fancy, luxurious lifestyle. Not everybody wants fancy cars or watches or clothes or whatever. But I still think most people would prefer that their life gets a little bit better and money can likely do that for you. So saving money is not going to necessarily allow that to happen. Whereas if you earn more income, you can still save more and increase your lifestyle a little bit over time. Yeah. And I talk about this. I talk about this in the book and like, how much can you, like, how much can you have lifestyle creep, you know, which is just like you spending a little bit more as you get raises and bonuses and stuff. And I talk about that. What's the optimal amount? We'll kind of get into some of that. I agree. You don't want to play this game where you're always fighting yourself every time you reach for your pocketbook. Right. And so for me, like I enjoy spending my money. I don't go, Oh my gosh, that's another this or that. Like, I don't think that way. And I have to think like, think long-term, think about raising your income. That's kind of the way to get out of this. If you're starting to worry about money, you need to figure out ways to raise your income. And over time, it's not easy. Of course, that's not, it's much easier to cut spending, right? Cause you, it's, you can, it's a lever you can pull now, but it's a short-term lever versus a long-term lever. This part of the book really spoke to me because it's just a philosophy that I personally believe so strongly. It's like, I am not a super materialistic person. I don't care for clothes or watches. I do like cars, but I'm not a materialistic person. But at the same time, I also believe that if you're going to work your butt off and you're going to work super hard, like why wouldn't you want to try to live as best you can? And so for me, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to work super hard to save more money so that I can have a less life where you could work mm-hmm. equally as hard, make more money and also live a better life. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with that. I think there's a lot, especially COVID, I think taught me a lot about this. Like imagine all these people that sacrificed for all these years and then God forbid they caught this crazy disease that no one saw coming or crazy infection. And, you know, unfortunately they passed away. And it's like you think about, you know, you only get one life to live. I'm not saying you low and just spend all your money today. Obviously, there's limits to this, but it's it's about finding balance. I think balance is the key in this discussion. It's kind of funny. I, I saw this meme on social media. It showed this older couple on a roller coaster. And they were coming down the roller coaster and they were both sleeping on it. And the memes caption basically said, this is why you don't save all of your money only for retirement. You have to live a little bit now. And I think that's so true. You can't enjoy many things in retirement that you can now due to things that involve your age and your health. Ramit Sethi helped me realize this too. He always says to focus on what you like spending your money on and save ruthlessly on other things. 
Yeah, I agree. Like this t-shirt, this is Amazon V-neck. I got it for $8, you know, but then at the same time, like I live in New York city. Cause like, I love the restaurants here and I'm like, tonight I'm going out to get dry aged ribeye. I'm going to spend like an exorbitant amount of money on meat, but that's what I, I like that experience for me. It's restaurants. I'm a foodie. That's my thing. I don't spend a ton of money on clothing or I don't have a car. I'm 32 years old. I've never owned a car. It's crazy to people like, how can you never owned a car, right? So it's like, there's a lot of things about my life that I that aren't traditional, but then there's parts that are like kind of exorbitant. And that's like my restaurant budget is crazy, right? So like, I know, but that's my life. That's what I like to do. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Rami. I have different categories, but the same philosophy. I like to eat healthy. I'm big into fitness and health, but I'm not necessarily a foodie where I need to go out to all these pricier restaurants. I don't really care about clothes. I get almost all of my clothes from Walmart. I get really cheap clothes. It doesn't matter to me but I spend a lot on travel and dirt bike since I race motocross. So it's just choosing what you like to spend your money on. Yeah, of course. I completely agree with that. The second part of that rule I want to talk about is when you said that people should find ways to grow their income in small ways so it can lead to big ways to grow it in the future. Break down this idea for us and outline an example as to how this could work in practice. Yeah. So an example I can give is, so I've been blogging for about five years. I'll use that example, but we can use a more generic one after. So I've been blogging for about five years. And when I first started blogging, like I didn't have an audience, I didn't really make any money on it. And eventually I started doing like Amazon affiliate links where anytime I talked about a book that I thought was good, I just drop a link in there and I make a little bit of money on that. So it was small little things that as I started doing this over time, first I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing affiliate links. Then I started doing partnerships. Then I've done a sponsored post or two. Those are kind of rare. I started running ads. So over time, like this thing, which was very small and I wasn't making much money on it, now is like a significant side hustle for me. And that's something where it's just like, it's something I've done over time and built it up. Now you could do that with anything. Let's say you're starting a photography business, right? And first you just, you know, you do a couple of shoots for people. Next thing you know, you create a website. Now you have ways to market it more. Now maybe you start hiring photographers and training them, or you start creating a photography course, right? You can imagine small ways where you can make income and like these one-off things where you're just doing, you know, photography shoots. And then eventually you can turn that into a business, a brand, all sorts of things where it starts becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's just one way to do it. There's other ways you can do it. Like that's obviously that's for side hustles and things like that. But even in your main job, there's things where like you could do things that can really kind of get you on a path so that you're, you know, making more money. You got to show your value in some way and you get a bigger raise or who knows. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could do that. And I think it's just about finding because it takes a long time. Like for basically two to three years, I made almost no money on that blog. And now it's making some money on it and it's decent. It's a decent side hustle. I think that's the key is like it don't give up like so early. Like it takes a long time. And so just find something that if it's a side hustle or something, find something you love to do and just do it because you love it. And there will be ways to monetize. Someone just told me recently, there's a guy that has like one of these bonsai trees. And all he does is like he live streams himself like cleaning and like taking care of these bonsai trees. And he makes a bunch of money on this. And it's just because he's like one of the best at it. You would say, if you asked me like, how much money could you do making this? I'm like, mm, you can't make much money. And the guy makes decent money doing this. Don't discount your niche, your niche hobbies. Like for all you know, if you're really into these things, you could become like someone that people look up to in this space. You got to obviously create the content though and put in the work. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, 
Whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. There's a podcast called The Side Hustle Show with Nick Loper, and he talks about that exact idea of how you could find a niche and just be the best person in that niche. And regardless of how niche it is, you can still make a lot of money. And there's some Mm -hmm. pretty crazy examples that he shares on the show, exactly like you said. The other piece about this concept that I really like is there's this other idea that's one of my favorites is that it allows you to go on offense. If you start making a little bit of money, you could take that money and go on offense with it. So maybe in the short term, it's not a lot of money. You're just making a little bit here and there. But eventually, maybe you buy that, use that money to buy a real estate deal. And then maybe that Mm -hmm. provides significantly more income. And then you could buy more real estate deals. And then that provides even more income. Or maybe you start investing in startups or, you know, whatever it is, you could take small income, go on offense with it and use that to generate more income in the future. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think a lot of these things build on each other's compounding. Like, you know, one thing leads to another thing. Like, and for example, I have a book coming out. That be, that half of this book was blog posts that have basically been refined by my editor. My editor and I have kind of edited the philosophy, but like these started as things I put on the internet publicly for free. So, you know, if you've read every one of my blog posts, you're gonna see like half of this stuff is things you've kind of seen before, certain ideas. But thankfully, most people haven't read half of my, all my blog posts, which is great. So it's gonna be mostly new for most people, which is great. But yeah, so that's the thing I think about just how that can compound and grow in different ways. I've heard some financial advice that says people shouldn't buy things that they can't buy two of. The advice says that if someone can't buy two, they can't really afford it. You say that people should actually use a similar process, buying something twice, but instead of as a measurement of whether or not the person can afford it, it should be used to eliminate spending guilt. How can using your 2x rule eliminate someone's guilt they feel from spending money on themselves? So a lot of the things I like to talk about and just keep buying are kind of counterintuitive truths. I think there's a lot of people that have spending guilt, like every time they spend money, they worry about it or they splurge a little bit on themselves. Like for example, you go to a nice dinner or you buy yourself a nice, whatever, a nice car or a nice pair of shoes or whatever it is. You do one of these things and 
there's so much guilt in our in the financial personal finance community about like doing that. Like, oh, you're buying yourself lattes, you're paying away a million dollars, or you're not working hard enough, all this stuff. And so to eliminate guilt, I think the 2X rule works really well because if you want to splurge, let's say you want to spend $400 on a pair of dress shoes, like a really nice pair you want to keep for a long time. Well, take another $400 and invest it in some sort of income producing asset, whatever, whether that be some sort of REITs or stocks or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of... I don't, I'm not trying to give you a specific recommendation. There's a lot of income producing assets you can invest in. But you invest another 400 because then you'll feel like, hey, even though I splurged on myself, I took the same amount of money and I put it towards a good use, whether that's investing or you could even donate it. There's a lot of ways you can do this. And if you feel like, oh, I'm spending too much on myself, well, donate that $400 to a cause you care about. And that's going to kind of eliminate that guilt. So you're not going to feel bad. Every time you splurge on yourself, you're going to be helping someone else or helping your future self, whatever, however you want to do it. There's a lot of different ways you can do this. And I think that's helpful because you know we're a society that, and I said in the personal finance community, does guilt people a lot. And I'm just trying to like get people to stop being in their heads so much about this. Like I'm saying, like, hey, I've looked at the data on this. I've thought about this a lot. And like, here's some ways that you can kind of just live a, a nicer financial life, not worry about money as much. It's funny because I write about money, I think about money all the time. Like, but at the same time, like in my personal life, I almost never think about money. It's not because like I'm super rich. I'm not a millionaire. I don't have like all these things going for me. But like at the same time, I've been able to free myself from like always thinking about like, oh my god, I'm not rich enough. I'm never going to have enough and getting out of that scarcity mindset and just not stressing about a lot of these things and kind of getting rid of that guilt, I think is really important for just enjoying your day to day. I am the exact same way. I'm not some multimillionaire. I'm not super successful by any means, but I do think and talk about money pretty much all day, every day, whether it be on the podcast or social media. But in my personal life, I just spend a little bit of time on it and don't really stress about it. Like you said, but what's interesting is the personal finance community, like you mentioned, can be a little bit judgmental at times. One of the things they might say is that you need to pretty much save as much as you possibly can. And a lot of people post about maximizing their saving rates, but your book talks about how people actually don't need to save as much as they think. Can you break down that idea for us? I've just looked at the data on retirees, and I think this says a lot. So, I mean, the, the most shocking fact I have is like only one in six retirees are actually pulling down their principal. So, if you have a million dollar portfolio for retirement, only one in six are actually like kind of pulling, like spending that money. Most of them are living off Social Security and the dividends they get, you know, the income they get from their portfolio, which is kind of shocking to think, like, what? It's such a small amount. And you're saying, what about the people that don't even have a portfolio? Well, then they're just living off Social Security. That's not great, but they're getting by somehow, right? So I'm not saying it's the greatest lifestyle, but a lot of retirees end up getting to the finish line. They're there and then they don't end up spending down their money. And it's kind of wild. And I especially see this like, you know, I've worked in a wealth management firm. So I see this, especially because we have high net worth individuals. And the thing we have to really do is get them to spend money. And they're, they're afraid because they've been in saving mode for so long. They've done it so well. They're so disciplined that now to turn the lever the opposite direction, it's scary. And it's also psychologically difficult. So I'm trying to give people the permission not to say spend all your money and do this, but just like don't worry so much about how much you're saving. And of course, there's going to be exceptions. If there's people who are, you know, a couple hundred grand in debt and they don't have any emergency funding, like those people need help and those people do need to think about their savings. But, you know, at the same time, like that's not everybody. And right. So figuring out like what we can do to help people in those scenarios, like whether it's policy things like that. At the same time, all the people that aren't in that scenario, I have friends who I'm like, I have friends that are much richer than me. Like they exited from their, their companies, they got equity in their like startups and everything. And they're worried about money. I'm like, what are you like? You're two years younger than me. You're like, you know, your net worth's like three or four times mine. Like, you're worried about money. And it's, it's, it's not crazy. It just it shocks me, really. It does. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are like that. And it's scary. So I'm just trying to like give people, you know, like relax a little. You know, and there's a lot of data on people who die in their 60s give, I can't remember the exact numbers. It's in, I wish I, I should memorize this, but it's something like the average bequest is like, you know, $175,000, $200,000. 
in their 70s, it's higher. In their 80s, it's even higher. So it's like as people die older, their money keeps going up. And the other really cool fact, Michael Kitsis did this analysis on the 4% rule. And he says, like, let's say you just pulled 4% of your, you know, you took 4% of your portfolio every year and had a 60-40 portfolio. You're more likely to 4X your wealth after 30 years than you are to have any depletion of principle. So if you start with a million bucks and you just use the 4% rule on a 60-40 historically, 30 years later, you're more likely to have $4 million than under a million. That's how crazy it is. And that's the data right there. It's like people think, oh my gosh, I'm going to run out of money. No, your wealth's probably going to keep growing. That's the crazy part. Like you're going to be in retirement and your wealth's probably going to keep going up and up and up. And so that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is just how the upside that that is really available. And that's why I think people don't need to save as much as they think. So do you think the 4% rule might not be kind of the best metric to use? No, I think it's fine. I think it's a good rule. It works for a lot of ways. I mean, there's debates right now because inflation's high and there's debates about whether the 4% rule needs to be rethought, especially because bond yields are lower. And that, those are fair arguments. And it's kind of complex. It's not an easy topic. I don't even think I'm the, the expert on this. I would talk to Kitsis or someone else on that. 4% is a decent rule. It's just worked over time and it's been around for a while. And I, I talk about it in the book. I think it's a decent proxy just to start. And it's easy, right? It's easy. It's decent because like retirement's really one of the most difficult problems to solve. And the 4% rule is great because it kind of gets a lot of stuff without having to really do a ton of calculations and life expectancy and you know projected returns. It's like, it just solves a lot of that very quickly and it's a decent proxy. Now, is it the greatest? No, but I think 4% rule is fine for most people. If you're just trying to kind of like find something and go with it, I think it's decent. Debt can be a very controversial topic in the personal finance and investing world. On one end, you have Robert Kiyosaki who talks about loving debt, at least good debt, not credit card debt. Then on the other hand, you have Dave Ramsey who says that all debt is bad. As a real estate investor myself, I personally side a bit more with Kiyosaki. Why do you believe that debt isn't good or bad? Yeah, I think debt is, it really depends on how you use it, right? And that's, that's always going to be kind of driven. It's context dependent. But yeah, if I have to pick, I'm probably closer to Kiyosaki on this as well. Because I really think I, I think I said this, I said something like, you know, the people who are best fit to take on debt are the people who don't need it. Right. If you don't need debt, like you don't need it to like, oh, I really need this to get this out. If you could buy a house cash, don't. That's like the thing. Like you're saying, oh, I should. Like you probably, I mean, there's people that do it to sleep at night. And I know people in my personal life, good friends of mine who just like, oh, I had to buy my, I just don't want a mortgage. It just gives me peace of mind. Great. Do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times, like having debt is great because inflation, right? Like you have that debt and over time gets inflated. And the example I give in the book, my grandparents bought their house in California in 1972 for $27,000. Their payment at the time, I think it was like 270 bucks. 10 years later, after all the inflation, because I don't know how my grandfather's wages went, but let's just assume my grandfather's wages kept pace with inflation. 10 years later, in real terms, their payment was cut in half, like in real terms. They were still paying 270 a month, but that money had been cut in half by, due to inflation. So that's the real benefit of debt. And right now, because we have high inflation, anyone who took out mortgages in 2019, 2020, stuff like that, because of this high inflation, assuming their income is kind of moving up with that inflation, it's great because now their payment's not moving at all and the dollar's becoming worth less. You're paying back in you know, depreciated paper, basically. So that's why debt can be really good. Of course, there's exceptions. There's times when people get too over levered. There's times when people get way too much credit card debt. There's all sorts of cases where it's bad, but I think generally it's context dependent. I think it can be really good. And so I don't think people need to freak out about debt as much as they do. I locked in my mortgage on my personal residence back in, I think it was 2020 at 2.2%. My gosh. I just, that's a 30 year fixed mortgage. I just cannot imagine ever paying that off. 
I have friends, like you mentioned, that are big proponents of paying off their mortgage. And like, I understand that from a psychological standpoint, but for me, just from pure quantitative factors, yeah. like I, I just can't pay off a 2.2% mortgage when inflation's as high as it is. And I just don't lose sleep at night above, over it. Yeah, I agree. And so I think it's a personality thing. Some people will do that. The book I would rep for that is The Value of Debt and Building Wealth. That really changed my mindset. I used to be pretty anti-debt. And after reading about that, I was like, wow, there's a lot of cool things you can do with debt if you do it responsibly. And once again, the people that are best to use debt are the people that don't need it. That's really, it's really kind of like a privilege for those who just have assets, right? That's really, if you think about it, like debt is great, like think about what someone like Elon Musk will do where, I mean, he, he's since sold stock, but what he used to do, he used to take, oh, here's my, all of my equity for Tesla. He would say, okay, I'm going to borrow against it. So instead of selling his stock, which lowers his equity percentage, and then he has to pay taxes, he just borrows against it and gives his stock as the collateral. So he's using debt, getting paid, you know, taking all pay 2% a year. It's, it's small for him, right? And with inflation, it's, it's even smaller. So it's one of those things where like, even the, the ultra rich uses to their advantage all the time. I was um, just going to say, that's what I've heard is like one of the mm-hmm. quote unquote secrets of the wealthy is that they'll a lot of times have no actual active income or anything like that. They'll take their real estate portfolios or their equity portfolios, use them as collateral and take the debt, like you said, and, and use that as their income, pay 1%, 2%. And taxes are lower. Yeah. Because they don't, the taxes, taxes where they, where they get most people, right? The people who pay most of the taxes are like high income people. With the stock market having done so well over the last decade, arguably one of the best decades ever, and a lot of investors in the market today have never experienced a real recession, there are many individuals wondering if it makes more sense to invest their emergency fund or savings while they save up to make a a big purchase like a house or a wedding. Why do you believe just keeping the money in cash is the right approach when saving for a big purchase? Yeah, most of that is just volatility. Like there's way too much risk. If you're going to be buying something in the next two to three years, like it needs to be in cash. I know right now, like inflation is high and that seems really silly, but look at most of the last, you know, 12, 15 years. Inflation is generally low. There are times when it's high and that sucks that it happens. And that means you're going to have to save. Let's say you're saving up for something. You're going to have to save for an extra month or two. If you're saying, like, let's say you're saving $1,000 a month, you need to get to, like, I don't know, let's say 30. I'm just going to make the numbers easy. Let's say you need to get to $36,000, right? So you need to save $1,000 a month for the next three years to put down a down payment on a house or something. I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. Okay. So you're saving that up. Inflation's high. Okay. After like a really high inflation, you might just save for another three or four months. That sucks. That's not great, but you just got to move your purchase out a little bit. The flip side is what if you put that in stocks? And even though most of the time I agree, you will do better. There are really big risks when it crashes because you could lose a lot of that money. And if you really need it, you know, saving for an extra one or two months may not do it for you. You may have to save for another year or longer. And if you go into a prolonged bear market, it could be even worse. That's why I say, like, if you need when you need the money, you need to be closer to cash. And I've also I've also asked I have a lot of advisors that are in my network and I've asked them, and they all say cash, cash. For saying two to three years cash, after three years, you might want to start getting some yield with bonds or something. After five, you kind of maybe need to consider some bond stocks as well. So that's kind of how I look at it. Based on the data, I'd say under three years cash, three to five, you start adding bonds and then five plus you'll start adding stocks. And what the risk amount, it depends on what you want to do. But And those are bonds. You don't have to do that. You do real estate. There's other things you can do. I just use bonds and stocks like a less risky versus more risky risk asset, right? So or an income producing asset. So you can be like, oh, I'm going to put bonds or I'm going to do something else. Like There's a lot of ways to do it. I don't want to just say you have to do bonds and stocks. That's just the traditional assets people talk about. You look at tech and the FANG stocks over the last two, three, four, or five years, they've done really, really well. But if you have been putting your savings or emergency fund into those stocks or companies the last couple of years, and then you needed it recently, you'd be in a rough spot on some of those picks. 
you're down 20, 30, 40% on some of those holdings. Facebook, for example, is down 40% from its highs during the time of this recording. And one of my big holdings, Square, is down over 50% from its highs. Even some of these great companies are down significantly. So if you needed that money now, then it would be really bad timing to access that cash. Yeah, it's just risk. I mean, if you're trying to plan for something you know you want, especially like, oh, we're having a wedding on this, like, it's a house, you can push it around. If it's like, oh, we're doing a wedding, like, you know, you don't want to start delaying your wedding because you don't have the cash for that, right? That's not something you want to do. So you got to start thinking about like planning and, and things like that. And it's not great, but with inflation, but it's the safest thing to do, you know? And for now, that's just generally true. And we haven't had an adverse cash event, like, oh my gosh, the cash is now worthless or hyperinflation. If we have that, I think your wedding is not as important as what's going on in society, if we're being honest. The advice to not buy individual stocks isn't new. Jack Bogle, JL Collins, even Warren Buffett, and many, many others have said that most people shouldn't buy individual stocks. However, rarely when this advice is given is it actually backed by real data and facts. I'm not saying that that data and facts don't exist, but usually when people on social media say you shouldn't buy individual stocks, they don't provide data and facts to back up their argument. Since you are someone who studies data religiously, Break down with data why individual investors don't know if they're just lucky when they pick a good individual stock and why most investors shouldn't do it. Yeah. So when I think how I like to think about this and how I broke it down in the book is there's two different arguments. The main argument when most people in Buffett and Collins, all these people are saying don't buy individual stocks. I do think they have some data and that data is basically like you look at like what I, what, there's the SPIVA reports, S-P-I-V-A, you look those up on Google and you'll see that over like any five-year period, something like 60 to 80% of active managers cannot beat their benchmarks. It's usually like 75% after fees and everything. You know, most of the professionals with analysts and all these resources can't beat just a passive index fund, right? So after a five-year period, so what it shows is like, it's really tough to do. So just by picking a passive index fund, you're at the 80th percentile. So I'm going to call that the financial argument, right? And that's the argument most people make. They're saying, hey, like you shouldn't do this because you're going to make less money. And that's fine. That's the argument. That's what I'm saying. I brought that up. I have to address it because that's the one most people talk about. And that's fine in its own right. But that's not the argument I make. The argument I make is what I call the existential argument, which is what you're talking about. And the existential argument is basically like, how do you know that you're good at stock picking, right? Like it, with so many endeavors in life, you can identify skill relatively quickly. And, I, and the, the examples I give, it's, Let's say you know you, myself, and LeBron James went out to a basketball court. You would tell pretty quickly. Let's say you didn't know who LeBron James was. You've never heard of this guy or just a similar LeBron James figure. We go out and play. You're going to know pretty quickly. I can't play basketball, and he can. You're not going. There's no luck. I'm not going to get lucky and beat him, right? Unless something happens, some like he hurts himself on the very first play. There's no way I'm going to beat him, right? You can tell skill pretty quickly. Same thing with like if you're a computer programmer, you're going to know like, oh, does this person know what they're doing, or they don't know how to run the program? Like, it's going to be obvious within minutes if someone knows what they're talking about, right? But with picking stocks, you don't know. The fact is we can go, like you and I, Robert, could go and buy, you can pick a portfolio, I can pick a portfolio. And we may not know like after a month, a year, five years, 10 years, I could just get lucky. I could put my money in Amazon in 2002 and you could have put it in something else. And I just held on and I just beat you because I got one lucky pick that crushed all your other picks. And there's nothing you could have done. So luck can overpower skill. And so there's some data. There was a great paper called, I think, can... I think it's called Can Mutual Funds Pick Stars or something like that. I can't remember the exact name of it, but there's basically a paper I referenced in the book. And like basically they're asking, is there stock picking skill? And they found that they can identify, they bootstrapped and did all these things, which basically means they just like they took some data and they tried to reimagine what the distribution of returns looks like. That's what bootstrapping means. And basically they said 10% of people have actual skill. And that's the number they pick. I'm not saying it's a perfect number. Let's say it's 10, 15%, it doesn't really matter, but let's just use the 10% figure. So let's say 10% of people have skill with certainty and it can be identified, right? 
And let's assume that another 10% don't have skill. And we can also identify that. So we can identify the best and the worst pretty easily. That means that four out of five people, 80%, you're not going to know if you're good. So why would you play this game, pick individual stocks when you don't even know if you're good at it? Who I'm addressing here, I'm not addressing people that say, oh, I'm going to take 5% of my money and put it in individual stocks. I would consider that fun money. You're doing it for fun. You like doing it. That's fine. Have a ball. Enjoy it. I have nothing against that. I'm talking about the people that have 80, 90, 100% of their money individual stock picks. I think it's really difficult to do that. And I think the existential crisis is you have to look yourself in the mirror every day and say, am I actually good at this or am I just lucky? And you're not going to know. Unlike almost everything else, your people out there doing things like, you know, if you're good at doing something or not, you have some idea of your skill and your values in most endeavors. It's just really tough for me to recommend that people pick stocks given you're not going to know if you're good. And even if you are good, the best managers, Baird did a study where they found that the absolute best managers will underperform at some point. So it's like, is that underperformance just a natural lull or have I lost my skill? Did I used to be good and now I'm not? Like, There's all sorts of questions that you're going to just eat yourself up mentally over. And I'm like, why go through all that? Avoid it all. Be a passive investor and be at the 80th percentile. And people say, you know, passive investors have no conviction. Oh, you guys are just, you have no conviction over everything. No, I have more conviction than active investors because I've seen the data. I'm convinced that me just picking the default option of being a passive investor is going to beat 75 to 80% of people. And that is why that's important for me because I have conviction that just doing that is going to win out. And the fact is, most of these stock pickers don't have that. They say, oh, I have conviction in these companies, but they could underperform, right? So why spend all this time and still underperform at the end of the day? That's the question I have. What I frequently talk about around this kind of idea is it kind of blows my mind that people will graduate college or wake up one day in their 30s or whatever, however old they are, and they'll feel like, okay, I can pick individual stocks today. I've never studied finance. I've never done any sort of training, nothing, but I can go toe to toe with some of the best hedge fund managers, day traders, these large people who have just spent their entire lives dedicated to this one thing, and they think they can go toe to toe with them and compete and win. And you just don't see that in any other field. And I think that's fascinating. You don't see that with doctors or lawyers or even Mm -hmm. accountants or programming. Like You don't see people wake up one day and just say, oh, I'm going to go do brain surgery. When these doctors have committed their whole lives to learning how to do brain surgery, it's the same in finance. You have hedge fund managers and high frequency traders and all these guys that have spent their entire lives and careers and money on being good at this. And it's just, it kind of blows my mind that people think they can go toe to toe with them. Yeah. And I think the last couple of months coming from late 2021 into early 2022 has illustrated like who's really good and who's not. Because you, there's all these tech stocks we're talking about. People are like, oh my gosh, I made so much money on Zoom and this and that and Peloton. And all these stocks are down very badly. And it's like the round trip has happened. They went, they peaked and now they're down. And so you'll find out like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not as good as this as, as I thought. So if you're in one of those spaces where you've lost a lot of money on individual stocks, I'm sorry that's happened to you, but maybe it's a wake up call to like, just be a passive investor and just do something better with your time. Find ways to raise your income. You're going to make more money doing that than you are going to trying to play this game. You know, and that's why I recommend people do do something else with your time, more productive, that's better suited for your skills. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. And it's interesting for me to even say this because my philosophy has changed so much over the last decade or even more, like almost close to 15 years. I started investing when I was 14 and Mm -hmm. I was entirely all about individual stocks. Like that was all I believed in. I was like, that's the way to go. I love Warren Buffett. I go out to Omaha. Like I study him Mm -hmm. all the time. Like this is the way. And then over the last, I don't know, maybe it's age and I'm not that old, I'm only 27, but since Mm -hmm. I turned maybe 25, so over the last two, three years, I've kind of been trending a lot more towards this passive index ETF approach Mm -hmm. and and really believing in it. Yeah. I mean, because if you really think about what's the S&P 500 index, like you have a committee that's bringing in new companies, dropping it. So it's not the same 500 companies you're buying and holding forever. There is some active management, but you don't have to pay for it. It's done by S&P, right? So it's really like, there's some of that going on. It's really just like, oh, these companies are getting bigger and they're adding them in. These companies are getting smaller, dropping them out. And so there's like an active kind of, it's like a momentum strategy if you really think about it. So it's pretty natural and very easy to kind of get into that. I was working a part-time job in college at a large credit union and we had an in-house financial advisor who randomly taught me one day about dollar cost averaging. He knew I was a finance enthusiast and was studying it in school. So he decided to come into my office and teach me about dollar cost averaging because he believed in it. After that, I had always found articles to support my idea that DCA is the best way to go. I'm not sure if this was confirmation bias, just working its magic, or if DCA is truly the best. But after starting this podcast, I've had some guests say they don't think DCA is the best and that they have data that supports lump sum investing. Your opinion is that no one can beat dollar cost averaging and people should invest as frequently as they can. Break down why dollar cost averaging is the best strategy. Of course. So I think the first thing we need to address is when we say, we, I don't even know if you just realized it, but you just referenced two different definitions of dollar cost averaging. And this is nothing that you've done wrong. This is a huge issue in the personal finance investing community. There are two different definitions of dollar cost averaging, and they mean very different things. 
So the dollar cost averaging, the original definition, which I think Benjamin Graham came up with, he says, when you're just buying over time, every time, let's say you get your money in your 401k every two weeks or twice a month, whatever it is, and you're buying, like every time you get the money, you buy right away. That's considered dollar cost averaging. Every time you get paid, you invest your money, right? That's dollar cost averaging. But then the dollar cost averaging you just referred to is like if someone got an inheritance of like $100,000 or they sold a business or something and they have that $100,000, instead of putting it into the market right away, they slowly, what I call average in. In the book, I, I don't like calling that dollar cost averaging. I call that averaging into the market because you have the sum already and you're averaging it in versus dollar cost averaging. I think the original definition is just buying over time and buying as frequently as you can. So if you really think about it, every time you get paid in your, four, like let's say you get paid and you invest in your 401k, you're really doing a miniature lump sum. It's like you took a little bit of money and you did a lump sum straight into the market. And you, because buying as frequently as you can, that is dollar cost averaging, but really is, it's a form of like lump sum. You're lump summing, but just these little tiny lump sums over time. And so when we're talking about lump sum versus do, with the, uh, that other version of dollar cost averaging, which I call average in, lump sum is clearly superior. So, but that just means like buy as soon as you can. Generally, that pays off because markets generally go up, right? So you want to get in sooner. I, I've given examples already. At the beginning of this podcast, but the data in there is pretty clear. Like, there's like basically like an 80% chance that you're going to make more money if you just put the money in now versus if you wait or if you average in over the course of a year. So, when I say dollar cost averaging, even God couldn't be dollar cost averaging. That, when I'm talking about that, I'm saying like market timing, trying to pick when to buy dips is less optimal than just buying every single month for forever. So that's the whole idea. Dollar cost averaging, just keep buying are basically synonyms, but just keep buying has you know less syllables, so it's a little bit easier to say. So that's the whole idea. So I just want to make sure we're clear on definitions because when we start throwing those terms around, people are talking about different things and not even realizing it. And it can be very confusing. And I don't know how to solve this as a community. I'm not going to be like, oh, we need to say this. Like I can't make people choose language. I just think we should start saying, you know, lump sum versus average in. And then dollar cost averaging is like what you do in your 401k or every time you get paid and you buy, right? You're just buying over time. You're buying as soon as you can. So the main point is to buy as soon as possible. Buy quickly, I think is the phrase I would use. So I hope that clarifies my stance. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. I guess for me, when I had a lump sum of money come in, I was like, oh, well, 401k, I average in, right? I dollar cost average mm -hmm. in. So I was like, oh, I, I should do the same thing with this lump sum of money that works for my 401k. Why wouldn't I just do this uh, with this lump sum of money? So it's interesting to kind of hear this different distinction and different breakdown. Yeah. yeah. So I'm saying when you got that big lump sum, you should have put it in right away. So you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have said, okay, I'm going to take this money and slowly put it into the market because you're not really averaging in in your 401k when you think about it. Like when you get paid, you don't say, okay, I want to take this 4% of my paycheck and spread it out over the next three months. No, you put it in as soon as you get paid, right? So as soon as you have the money to invest, you invest it. That's the key. So as soon as you have the money, you invest it. As soon as you have money, you invest it. That's everything. If you got a big lump sum, you sold something, you have $100,000. Get it invested. You know, take some money, whatever you're spending on yourself, whatever, and then take all the money you're going to invest and just invest it then. That's the key. Behavioral finance has taught us that most investors are not actually rational when making investment decisions. In fact, most people tend to buy high and sell low, the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Not only should investors actually buy low and sell high, but why should investors buy quickly, which you just touched on a minute ago, but more importantly, sell slowly? to take advantage of markets that are generally rising over time. Well, I think the, the whole thing with selling slowly is as I said, you know, if markets as you just said as if markets are rising over time, then by selling slowly, you're kind of like getting out at higher higher price. If you sell it all now and it keeps going up, you might have regret. Of course, it could crash as well. So, when I recommend people sell things, I think unless you really need the money like I need to sell this to like lock up a certain lifestyle or I need it for something, then yes, you should sell immediately, but if you have like stock options things like that, 
sell enough just to kind of like keep like a, some base level of, you know, lifestyle, I would say, just have some base level of lifestyle. But beyond that, I would say slowly get out of it because those assets generally go up over time. So if that's not true of everything, but o- over time, most things go up to some degree. And so, you know, selling slowly really takes advantage of that. So that's the kind of big takeaway there. I don't really talk about it a lot here on the podcast or really anywhere publicly, but I was not dealt the best hand growing up. There were certainly people that had it way, way worse than me, without a doubt. My dad was amazing and he did amazing, amazing things for me. But I would say that just generally speaking, the hand I dealt wasn't great. Because of that, I love the quote that says, it's not the hand you're dealt, rather it's how you play your cards. Why is that quote also true for people in investing? Why is saving cash to buy market dips a bad idea? So I think when it comes to how you play your hand and why that's important is because luck matters a lot in investing. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say, oh, it's not going to matter. You're just over, you know, you're going to be fine no matter what. Like there are bad periods. Things happen, right? If you retired in the year 2000, you know, by 2009, you would have had a bad decade, right? Because you retired in 2000, bubble happened, you know, three years of declines. Then it starts to come up again. You think you're in recovery 2007, then 2008 happens. Like, that's a bad decade. So anyone who retired around the year 2000, unless they had just a really ton of money or had way more than they needed, could have had a, you know, a rough patch there. So that definitely happens. And so it's just thinking about like, you know, are there other things you can do to like information? Things are going to happen to you that you can't control, but it's like how you react to that information that really matters. That's true of everything in life. I can say something to you right now, Robert, that you may not agree with, and you can just be okay with it, or you can get really upset. And there's different ways you can even react to it. That's something to think about. In terms of your question about like, why shouldn't people save up cash to buy dips? We've kind of gotten into that a little bit. And it's basically just like people are doing that. You're kind of holding that cash, expecting some big dip to happen. And I just think the data shows that big dips are rare. And even when they're happening, you're going to be least likely, you're going to be least enthusiastic to buy during these crashes. You're like, oh, I want to get a better price. You're going to wait until it's even lower. And a lot of times you're not going to be able to time it properly. And then it might just rip back upward. And then you're left in the dust. March 2020 is a perfect example because it happened so quickly. And then it was over within five months from the bottom. We're already at a new all-time high. It was so fast that people had no clue what hit them. And it was a perfect example of why doing that type of strategy is not optimal. Warren Buffett says that we should be investing when there is blood in the streets. Typically, there's blood in the streets in times of trouble or when the markets are crashing or there's a recession or maybe even a pandemic. Why are market crashes not something to be afraid of? Rather, they are actually usually buying opportunities. How do people survive and thrive during market crashes? The funny thing is, I just said, you know, don't save up cash to buy dips because they're so rare. But in the event that you just happen to have cash, you happen to have something happen where you have extra investable cash and there's a dip, it's probably one of the best things you can ever do. Now, a big dip, that is, right? And the reason for this is just, it's just simple math. If you think about, you know, Every X percentage decline requires a larger gain to get back to even. If you have $100 and it goes down to 50, you just decline by 50% to get back to even from 50 to go to 100, you need a 100% gain. So the gain's even bigger. So as long as you assume that markets generally recover, and I think they generally do, this is not true of every market. Like Greece right now is still down bad from where it was in 07, 08. Russia's down you know, 80% in the last few months. And it's like, will it come back? I have no clue. Like This could be an existential thing for them. There are exceptions to this rule, but if you're diversified, that even if you have one that goes to zero, so to speak, you'll have other markets where you can make money. As long as things generally recover and you believe in like the long-term progress of you know humanity, civilization, economic growth, then I think the the, the economics makes sense. If you're buying at a 50% discount, you don't have a hundred percent gain. The question is how many years is that going to take? It takes one year. Who doesn't want a hundred percent annualized return? Like everyone, I would have raised your hand, everyone wants that, right? Even if it's two years, okay, the annualized return, it's not exactly, I'm just going to use this linearly. This is not the exact math. You know, 100% over two years isn't 50% each year, but it's close. It's probably like 40 something percent because it's compounded on itself. 
Yeah. Well, if it takes three or four or five, you know, the bigger the drop, the bigger your annualized returns are to the recovery, right? So if it takes one year, it's a hundred percent return. If it takes two years, it's kind of like a 50% return. Even if it takes four years, you're looking at 25% annualized returns. So even if you bought at that 50% dip and you waited four years, when you bought all those dollars in expectation, like if they did recover in four years, are getting roughly like a 20, probably two to 25% annualized return, which is great, which is like double the market average. So who wouldn't want that? So you see that once you just start looking at the math, it's obvious like, oh my gosh, dips are such an opportunity as long as you assume there's going to be recovery. If you think that things will eventually recover, then they're huge opportunities. One of the parts of your book that is uncommon advice is where you say that people shouldn't max out their 401ks without considerable thought. Why do you believe against the common narrative that 401ks possibly shouldn't be maxed out? I mean, there's, of course, there's cases where it makes sense to max. If you're in a, look, for example, you're in a high tax state now, you know, you're going to be in a low tax state in retirement, taking advantage of that different tax arb where you're like the state income tax is very high. And then you go into a place with zero, that's a huge arb and you've got to take advantage that you should take, of, take advantage of. So yeah, I think the issue is when people are like thinking about maxing out their 401k, they're not thinking about, okay, what are the fees involved and what, how much benefit I'm actually getting by locking up my money until 59 and a half. And so I actually calculated this and on average, and I do this for a Roth 401k, I'll explain why in a second, because I only care about you avoiding the capital gains, right? The difference between choosing traditional and Roth is a separate discussion. We can kind of get into that in a moment, but just on the Roth, it's like the post income tax. We're not looking at the income tax we care about. We only care about the capital gains because the whole point of, of a 401k is you're avoiding the capital gains that you have to pay in a brokerage account. You're only getting, you know, I say the estimate I give is like 73 bips. So let's just say 70 bips, 0.7%, which is not a ton. It's not nothing, but it's not a ton. Now that assumes like similar fees between the 401k and a brokerage account. A lot of times your 401k all in is going to have a lot of extra fees. And for example, if you had a 1% fee in your 401k, like for your funds or just the 401k fee itself, you're now the benefit above the match. I think everyone should go to the match for the record. Everyone goes to the match. The benefit of all the dollars above the match is now negative if you have a really high fees in your 401k. Because think about it, you're paying that 1% fee to get a 70 BIP 0.7% you know, tax advantage. It doesn't make sense. You're losing. It's negative tax alpha. I think a well-managed brokerage account can actually you know, be worth... There's a little more flexibility there. You can move the money around, do things you want to do. I'm not saying people should never max out their 401ks. There are exceptions where it makes sense. For example, if you're like in New York or California and you have a really high state income tax, but you plan on retiring in, let's say, Florida or Texas, where there's no state income tax, there's things like that where you're avoiding a higher tax now with a traditional 401k and then paying a lower tax when you pull the money out in retirement. So there are exceptions, but even New York has like exceptions. They allow a certain amount of money for you to apply your 401k like tax-free. Really, you need to talk to a tax advisor for this stuff. But I just think the issue is like max out 401k is like dogma across the entire industry. And I think I'm the, one of the first people to like is this even right? Like, we go back to first principles. Does this actually make sense? I analyze the numbers and I'm not so sure for everyone. I think a lot of people don't even know their 401k fees and they just max without even thinking about it and they haven't dug into the numbers. So I'm saying, like, really spend time on this decision because I regret doing it because I maxed a lot and it's great. My retirement savings look great. But now, like, okay, I don't have the money, for example, for a down payment because I put all that money to my retirement, right? So it's like one of those things where, like, and I can't really get that money out now. And so and without paying penalties and fees. And I know you're saying, well, you can pull out 50K for down payment. There's, there are exceptions to this. And there's all these exceptions. And I get that. But for me, I think it's just dogma that's just thrown out there without actually considering whether it makes sense for a lot of people. So spend time on it. I know it's annoying to look through documents and do all that stuff, but really you got to spend time on it and figure out if it's right for you. So that's my whole point. It's just, it's just think about it a little bit more. Such a great point because this is just one of many, 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 many concepts that people in the financial world that are considered experts will throw out there and people just kind of accept this gospel and just expect that it's 100% true. And 
I mean, maybe it's true for some people, but financial advice is very rarely uniform. And like almost mm-hmm. every single person has a different situation that needs some sort of tweak. I agree. And that's kind of the, that's kind of what I try to do with the book is like, just attack everything with data and say like, what's the truth? You know, obviously there's always exceptions and there's a lot of nuance in a lot of these arguments, but like, I'm just trying to say like, what's actually going on here. And I care about trying to find that truth, whatever it is. And that's what I care about ultimately. And so I'm not so sure maxing out 401k makes sense for a lot of people, especially those who are high income and young, like that money could be used for other things. Like I think there's a lot of high income young people that are just like, Oh my God, max, max, max. And I'm just like, you need to think about that a little bit before you do that. Lifestyle creep and comparing ourselves to others makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to ever be satisfied financially. Why do you think people will never feel rich, but actually think that's okay? So I think people never feel rich because they're always comparing themselves to other people. And the the example I gave in the book is Lloyd Blankfein, who's the ex-CEO of Goldman Sachs. And he was interviewed and they said, and he remember, he's a billionaire. This guy's a billionaire. And they said, you know, are you rich? And he's like, oh, I'm not rich. I'm just well-to-do. Like, I'm just well-off. I'm not like, you know, I'm like super rich or anything. I think, I mean, his argument seems kind of outlandish. Like, you're a billionaire. How can you say that? But when your best friend is like David Geffen and Jeff Bezos and people who have, you know, 10, 100x your wealth, you're not going to feel that rich. When you can't afford a $600 million super yacht and they can, you're not going to feel as rich, right? And so the argument I'm going to make here and the argument I'm going to make in the book is like, okay, if you had $93,000 in net worth, you're in the 10, top 10% of the world. I would consider you rich if you're in the top 10% of the world. I would consider you a rich person relative to humans, right? Relative to all humans, you're rich. And now if I say, okay, oh, you have you have a hundred thousand dollar net worth, oh yeah, you're rich. And you're saying, Nick, but that's not fair. You can't compare me to people all over the world. Like you can't compare me to like, I don't know. I usually use the the example of like a farmer in Bangladesh or some person, you know, in I don't know, India, whatever. But these different places of the developing world of people who where there's extreme poverty, like you can't compare me to them. Well, guess what? Lloyd Blankfein probably thinks that you can't compare him to us, regular people. He's like, You can't compare me to those regular people. And you have to compare me to the Jeff Bezoses and the David Geffens of the world. His argument is obviously more outlandish than the argument that you and I might make, like, oh, you can't compare us to these people all over the world. But it's the same argument. We're just cutting hairs. We're like, what is rich really? Like, where do we stop the line? So a thing I like to say is like, I identify as rich. Like globally, I identify as rich. And I think you have to think that way because if you don't think that way, you're going to always be on that treadmill and you're always going to be trying to get for more. I'm not a millionaire, as I was talking about before. I'm not a millionaire. I'm not financially free where I can never work again. I still have to work. But I still identify as a rich citizen of the world. And I have to think that way because if I don't think that way, I'm not going to understand my privilege. I'm going to keep chasing money and maybe I'll never be happy. So I think just realizing like how well you have it off relative to others is a great way to just to kind of like, you know, have some perspective. And that's what I say. I don't mean to say I'm rich and like I'm boasting. It's not like that. It's like it's a mindset so you can, you know, psychologically better understand money and better understand how you think about these things and how you feel about yourself. And so you're not always chasing it. You can kind of escape the prison that I think a lot of people are in. And that's that's kind of what I'm trying to help people do in the book. I've never been one like you to to really say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm rich. Like I don't go around to people saying, oh, I'm rich or my parents or you know anybody like that. But it's interesting because I think my philosophy without ever really having thought about it or even verbalizing it, I think I feel the same way as you do. Like I think inherently I act like I know I'm rich against the rest of the world, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily like publicize that. So it's interesting without me even having known this concept or thinking about it, it's just kind of inherent in how I've felt about money and how I try to always be humble and grateful for what I do have. Yeah, yeah, and I don't go around saying that, like, "Hey, hey, nice to you. My name's Nick. I'm rich." I don't say that. It's obviously I'm not. That's crazy. I'm just saying. I'm saying it in a way of like, you have to think about yourself and like identify like like where you are in the world. Like I'm in. Like we're all in bubbles, right? And I realize I'm in one of the biggest bubbles, and I have to like constantly remind myself of the bubble I'm in 
Otherwise, I just will never like see the truth and I'll always be blinded and be like, I'll feel poor my whole life. And it's just silly. It's so silly to me. So I'm like, just have some like rational, objective standard of truth that you have to live by and realize how well you have it. Cause then, you know, I plan, there's a lot of stuff I want to do with philanthropy eventually, and I'm not there yet, but I'm almost there. And that's the kind of thing where I start to think about that stuff. And that for me is like something I really care about eventually. Yeah. It's interesting. I felt the same way without ever mm-hmm. having realized it. Like I didn't, I never mm-hmm. thought about this, but I've just felt that way even without knowing it. So great concept. Before we close out the episode, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to connect with you and learn more about your work, pick up your book, anywhere that people can connect with you. You can find me on Twitter. My handle's at dollars and data, just all one word, dollars and data. Or you can find me at my blog of dollarsanddata.com. My book will be available on Amazon. Just keep buying if you're interested. Obviously, you know it's a data-driven guide to personal finance, but I promise it's very accessible. There's a lot of stories. It's an easy read. It's not like you're not going to be overwhelmed with spreadsheets and numbers and stuff like that. There obviously are a bunch of numbers and charts, but I think it's done in an accessible way. That's a very easy read. So that's kind of always been my goal is to make it very easy. You know, my grandmother can even understand it. Not all of it, but she understands most of it. And I think that's the key is like, if she can like read it and be like, oh, I get that. I was like, perfect. Okay. I'm, I'm at the right level there. So yeah, but I appreciate you having me on the show and just want to thank you guys for your time for everyone who's been listening. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I'll be sure to put a link to your website, your Twitter, your book, everything that you're working on in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking it out. If you're watching the video version, I'm holding up a copy of this book. I was able to give it a read. I love the book, so I recommend you guys go in and check it out. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that, Robert. really appreciate you taking the time for that. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.